From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. When you close your eyes and imagine the future that awaits our species a hundred years from now, do you see an apocalyptic hellscape? Well, if you do, you're not alone. And if you don't, you're probably not paying very close attention to what many people have been trying to tell you. Our oceans are warming, so our ice caps are melting, so our sea levels are rising, so our coastal cities are sinking. The energy trapped in our atmosphere is rising, so our temperatures are increasing, so our droughts are worsening, so our crops are withering. Owing to all of this, and alas, even more, some researchers have estimated that two-thirds of the planet's animal and plant species may be driven to extinction by the end of this century. Although the study's authors comfortingly offered that most realistic scenarios would merely kill off one-third of the life forms by then. Just one-third, that's all. Of course, you envision a hellscape. What other evidence have you been offered? Well, I'd like to give you another side of the story. Today on the program, we're going to be talking about climate warming optimism, the counterintuitive notion that while the overwhelming weight of the evidence tells us that our planet is indeed warming and humans are indeed responsible, we don't have to fear the future. I know this because over five years of producing and hosting this program, I've spoken to hundreds of scientists from hundreds of disciplines. And if you're a frequent listener to this show, you know that no matter who the guest is, climate often works its way into the conversation. And again and again, something like this happens. And are you optimistic? It's a, it's a long slog to make the changes that we need to make. And I, so I'm curious if you think that for you know, the next generation, the generation after that, we're in a, better, a much better place. I am optimistic. I'm an optimistic person, and I really think we can make this happen. That's hydrologist Nusha Ajami. We're going to be hearing more from her today. We're also going to hear from engineer and inventor Nick Walkingshaw, urban planning and policy researcher Mehdi Harris, climate scientist Jeremy Hoffman, population health researcher Tariq Ben-Marninia, and science journalists Madeline Ostrander and Chris Turner. Turner has spent the past 20 years studying climate solutions. That's his job. That's really all he does. He travels around the world finding people and organizations that are having success in bringing down carbon emissions, building up net zero energy alternatives, figuring out how to pull carbon from the atmosphere, and identifying ways that humans can comfortably adapt to the warming that is an inevitable part of our future. Turner started his journey when he went to an auto show. And he saw for the first time a prototype of a vehicle that would run on something other than gasoline. The vehicle that was, was generating all the excitement that day in Montreal was this Ford prototype sedan that ran on hydrogen fuel cells. And that was, you know, that was sort of the start of this accelerating trip down a kind of journalistic path to just really focusing on the solutions, which was never ever intended to in any way suggest that the, the, the crisis itself was, was not getting worse all the time or didn't deserve all the attention it, it could possibly get from a media and public point of view, but rather that it didn't seem like there was as much coverage going on of how we might fix it. Did you catch that? We might fix it. 
Turner says that's not a certainty, but it's also not some fanciful notion or product of climate denialism. We're actually making progress. And we're not just making progress in places where the political conditions are ripe for doing so. You see it in energy storage, you now see it in electric vehicles, and it's basically very, very steep cost declines accompanied by very, very steep uh, adoption. My own home province of Alberta here in Canada, which historically is one of the most conservative provinces in Canada, if not the most conservative, has had a government for the last few years that's you know indifferent to slightly hostile to non-fossil energy. And yet we are now the leading jurisdiction in Canada for new solar and wind because the, the business case is so strong. And you know what? Of course it is. I mean, oil and gas are expensive. They're way down in the ground. You've got to extract them. You've got to refine them. You've got to transport them. And there are big costs to all of that. And then there's solar panels and windmills. And these aren't perfect solutions. Let's not pretend they are. But sunlight and wind are ubiquitous and immediate. There's no refining that needs to happen. The energy that is harvested can be used right where it's collected. And as energy sources like these are increasing, Turner says, we're not just hitting goals. We're actually exceeding them. If you're looking from the outside in at the United States, a lot of what we thought was going to be the pace of some of this stuff just got a giant boost from the Inflation Reduction Act and from the, the substantial boost that it's given to a bunch of the clean tech industry. So we may wind up even even sort of exceeding or, or hitting those goals early. But certainly, I think by you know 10 years from now, I think we'll already be living in a world where renewable energy is virtually the only new power source that, that we're seeing in large amounts, where you know, there will still be old buildings and old technologies and old cars on the road. But, but I do think that the progression now towards low to zero emissions future is inevitable and accelerating. And so it's just a question of how fast. Just a while ago, you said the words, we may be exceeding or hitting goals early. And I got to figure that even for someone who, for a good deal of time now, has defined himself as a climate optimist, that's got to feel like a weird thing to say. It, it's weird enough that I do I do find myself still double checking every time because it, it begins it, you start to think have I you know have I bought into someone's hype here but no it, it really genuinely is now accelerating at this kind of rate uh, this is that that sort of classic technology adoption curve where there's the the sort of very 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 slow buildup and then the inflection point and then it really takes off that we saw with all kinds of digital technology some of them have really powerful synergies that we've just begun to explore. You might have caught Chris Turner say the word storage a few times there. That's something that not a lot of people tend to think about when they're thinking about greenhouse emissions. But Nate Walkingshaw thinks about storage a lot. And I mean like a lot. Walkingshaw is the founder of Taurus, which is one of a small number of flywheel energy storage companies that have emerged in recent years. And if you haven't heard of flywheels, that's because well, for a long time, they were sort of dismissed as perpetual motion machines. But the principle is actually pretty simple. Basically, you put a big, heavy cylindrical weight on some bearings, and then you put a shell over it, and you vacuum seal it. And then you use immediately available energy, like daytime solar, to get that thing spinning. 
and that's when the conservation of angular momentum takes over with very little friction inside that vacuum. It just keeps spinning, and that right there is kinetic energy storage. And you can draw on it when energy isn't immediately available, like during the nighttime or when it's overcast. And if that sounds too good to be true, well, I'm actually glad you feel that way. I'm a natural skeptic too, but one of the things I really liked about Nate Walkingshaw is that he came on our program and spent as much time talking about other people's flywheels as the ones that his company builds. I mean, there's a company and kind of the grandfather were, you know, the people that have really proven massive success and scale is Amber Kinetics. Their flywheels are massive. So they have like very, very efficient wheels, um, very, you know, efficient round trip efficiencies, just an incredible marker of how viable the technology is. So is it proven? Yes. Is it proven to work at large scale? Yeah. Like they, they've done a great job, but nobody thought about applying that use case to residential homes to kind of take on head to head chemical batteries. And, but I think long-term viability for our planet to, to kind of really um, make it here is, you know, 25 to 30 year long solutions that are mined once and then are recyclable for another 30 years. What Nate was talking about fits into an idea that has become popular in recent years, the idea of circular economy, a change to the model in which resources are mined, made into products, and then become waste. In a circular economy, what we do is everything we can to redesign materials, products, and services to be less resource-intensive in the first place. But we also recapture waste as a resource to manufacture new materials and products. And that brings us to Nusha Ajami, the hydrologist who we heard from earlier talking about why she feels optimistic about the future. And that's no small thing for a hydrologist in the American West, where under climate warming, millions of people are living under longer, more frequent and more widespread periods of drought. You know, we are so used to thinking about drought as an occasional thing that happens that we have to sort of respond to, but we'll go away and we can go back to business as usual. So we have to change that mindset and be able to think, you know, wet years when they are here, that's when we should be jumping up and down and saving as much as we can, making sure we sort of strategize around how we want to use that water. And dry years are actually our normal years that we have to be really mindful and um, and be thoughtful in the way we, are, we use our water. Now, I've got to tell you, I bristled a little when Ajami said, we've got to be more thoughtful because there are a lot of times when I just don't feel like human beings are thoughtful animals. And as an aside here, I feel a little anxious about humans, kind of like how Aaron Burr felt about Alexander Hamilton. You know what I'm talking about, right? Hamilton doesn't hesitate. He exhibits no restraint. Takes and he takes and he takes and he keeps winning anyway. Changes the game, plays and he raises the stakes. And if there's a reason he seems to thrive and so few survive, then goddammit, I'm willing to wait for it. I'm willing to wait for it. Except we can't wait for it. These solutions need to be here yesterday. And actually, what Ajami told me is that they are. We already know how to use water in highly effective, safe, efficient, and circular ways. I would say the example that people often don't think about is something similar to solar panels on individual homes. 
we have on-site reuse systems in San Francisco that basically takes the water from your sink, from your um, shower, from your, you know, all the different waters that we use in the home and treats it. And then that water is used for flushing down toilets and using outdoor and irrigating outdoor spaces. And um, I think that's the smallest scale. And then as you go up, you can do this in a building, in a neighborhood, in a service area, and, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, regionally. So, um, so I think we should embrace reuse at every scale. You mentioned that the most immediate and cheapest way to protect water resources is simple reductions in water use. I think we can't have that conversation without talking about agriculture that uses something like about 70% of the water in the West. Uh, I'm a pretty ardent believer that a transformation to plant-based proteins that look and taste like animal meat are a nearly inevitable part of our future. Are you thinking much about what that transformation might look like uh, in terms of what we might glean with more water? Actually, absolutely. I think I would say I would start again from the waste part of agriculture. Um, A lot of the products and crops that we grow don't make it to the market. Um, A lot of the food that makes it to our homes or our communities gets wasted. How can we reduce that? That by itself can reduce water and energy footprint. Um, then on top of that goes to our diets and how we can, uh, I don't think we can, we would eliminate um, all the, uh, you know, uh, products that are super water intensive, but we can definitely create a more moderate uh, diet that has, doesn't have meat in every, uh, you know, portion of it. Uh, that by itself can also reduce our need. Um, also, remember, there's another element to water use, which is the water quality. Every water that we use, we degrade its quality, regardless of it's in agriculture or in our homes and communities. So that reduction in water use can also prevent pollution. You know, agriculture can become more efficient. We are still, in some areas, we are still using methodologies that were used uh, you know, but hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So we have to sort of rethink how we can become more efficient in the way we use water in our land and we grow food. You noted that we do a lot of things pretty much the same way we've been doing for a hundred years or longer. Um, that's a lot of inertia. So I'm wondering, as someone who's constantly thinking about the future, what's the future you most often see when you're looking forward maybe are we in really big trouble or have we largely figured this out i would say we have all the technologies that is needed to help us move forward did you catch that we have everything we need to move forward We don't have to wait for some crazy new technology. We don't have to reinvent society. We can use the solutions that are already in front of us. And that's also exactly what urban planning and policy researcher Mehdi Harris told me about dealing with urban heating under global warming, which results from the fact that city surfaces like roads and rooftops absorb heat to a greater extent than most natural surfaces do. And Mehdi told me, we know how to deal with this. We just plant trees. 
have some uh, materials that they don't store heat, then you would have less energy absorbed. We call that near surface area, and then you would have lower energy, your lower temperature. Vegetation, you know, helps you with uh, reducing that en- energy absorption. So that's why trees are good. Water will help us to also mitigate temperature. It, it is intuitive for us to know that water creates that uh, cooling impact. And vegetation and water go together. So it is not only trees, we can also have rain gardens, you can create vegetated areas or bioswells. All of them will help with reducing temperature. So your team has observed that a tree cover of at least 16% is required in order to achieve a reduction of average summer temperatures equal to one degree Celsius. And of course, this is going to be different for different cities, but but broadly speaking, 16% of tree covers, you get a 1% Celsius reduction. That matters, but you know, when we're talking about global warming, we're talking about more than one degree Celsius over pre-industrial averages. And some of our projections, some of our scarier projections are quite a bit more than that. Can we get to two and three degrees Celsius in reduction? Is there enough places to plant in most cities, enough room to do this sort of thing? Probably not. And those are all really good questions. Trees overall, when it comes to air temperature, um, the temperature that most thermometers can measure, trees are actually not very helpful with you know, reducing that temperature. Trees are really great with reducing mean radiant temperature, which is the temperature that you are receiving in, in a long wave form. When you are walking on the sidewalk on your neighborhood, you pass some shaded area, segment, shaded segment of the sidewalk. And if you are walking around 11 a.m., maybe 12 p.m., walking when you are exposed to radiation, it is actually not comfortable. But when you get to the shaded segment of the sidewalk, it instantly becomes much more cooler and you feel, oh, this is so cool. This is much more comfortable. But in fact, the air temperature of those areas are not very different. So what you are really feeling is the radiation. That's an important distinction. None of the scientists I've ever spoken to has told me that they think that we are going to stop global warming in the near time future. We're not. We could cut all carbon emissions right now, and we'd still have elevated circulating CO2 in our atmosphere for a very long time to come. Our past stays with us. That's something that climate scientist Jeremy Hoffman learned as he began studying the disparities of climate risk on communities that have been impacted by redlining, a practice that made low bank rate investment available to people in predominantly white neighborhoods and withheld it from minority communities all across the United States. And Hoffman says that as we increasingly focus on solutions, we have to be mindful of who those solutions will benefit and when and how. Because even solutions that seem really sensical are never perfect. Even the simple act of planting trees in urban areas can be fraught. Right now, many, many cities, rightfully so, are looking at how these land use 
decisions have affected the green amenities in these places. And if you do these things uh, without taking into account the very real consequences of um, things like adding to already rampant gentrification, housing is super expensive right now in virtually every city. And if you add green amenities, that potentially may exacerbate that. So in unfortunately, in some places, the, the connection um, between these greening projects and what is now called green gentrification is fairly strong. So there are no perfect solutions. And some people might hear that and think, well, why would I even try? But what I have kept hearing from all of these scientists are the echoes of a very old aphorism one that can be traced back to the French philosopher Montesquieu, who wrote, Le mieux est le mortel, ennemi du bien. The best is the mortal enemy of the good. So Hoffman told me, we keep learning. We keep improving. I'm super excited about researching and sharing successes, best practices, uh, and, and, and kind of models for scaling up what works in one place um, so that we don't have to recreate the wheel everywhere while also recognizing that the local context is going to drive whether or not a particular project is going to be successful. And even when we can't see a solution yet, the science itself can drive us. It can give us hope. It can give us optimism. That's the way Tariq Bin Marnia approaches each new day. He studies the intersection of disease and climate warming. And the hard truth that has emerged from his research is that climate warming is stoking disease outbreaks and other health challenges across the planet. And yet we don't have a solution to that yet. But he still wakes up each day feeling optimistic. There are many reasons to be kind of worried because this is a serious, a very, very serious issue. And especially as we discussed before, this is not... Yeah, this is not equal, and there are many, many like in like injustice implication, and that's something that is kind of um, yeah uh, overwhelming. But on the other hand, I I think this is better to recognize all of these issues as as best as we can, and also to think about the solution because just to keep optimistic, there are many solutions that exist, that many possible like things that we can do, and that, that also have a lot of co-benefits. You know. It's okay to feel scared about the future, to feel like as our world warms, we've lost something special that we might never get back. That's what the science journalist Madeline Ostrander wrote about in her book, At Home on an Unruly Planet. And I told Madeline that it was a book that did make me feel as if I wasn't alone and having those sorts of feelings about what has happened to our planet. Well, that's a really lovely sentiment. Um, I think... You know, when I've when I've talked in a in a more sort of analytical way about who the audience of this book is, I talk about the alarmed, which is um, so the Yale program on climate change communication has this series of studies they do on the American population and the segment of people who are the most worried about climate change keeps them up at night, and um, you know they're the most willing to get engaged in it is called the alarmed, and I wanted to write a book because I think I'm also part of the alarms. Um, I wanted to write a book that, you know, would sort of help partly myself and other people um, process how, you know, how do we manage? How do we move ahead in this 
era. And yeah, I mean, I think I think I probably did in some way want people to read the book and feel less alone and also feel more like they had some sort of power. They had some sort of place that they could get started. And that place could be at home. It could be in their community. And I also wanted people to see these journeys of these amazing individuals who are in the book who are you know, out in their own communities, in their own cities and towns, doing extraordinary work to try to reimagine reinvent, recreate, um, you know, spaces that are resilient and durable and sustainable in this time of climate crisis. And those are the folks who give me a lot of hope. And these are the folks who give me hope. Hydrologists and engineers and urban planning experts and water policy specialists and climate scientists and health researchers and science journalists who are collectively telling us that the solutions are here. More are coming. And no, things will never be the same. But things are going to be all right. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 10.30 and KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And however you listen, please consider giving your support to public radio. You can do that at donate.nprstations.org slash UPR. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaFont. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.